you know, design thinking comes from architecture and engineering and these fields that were for a long time dominated by, you know, wealthy white men. And um, it is long overdue for a rebranding. That is Ashley Pinnacavich. And this is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. And, and the number one thing that I would say for leaders in a school is to practice the empathy piece to, instead of having meetings that are evaluative only, include meetings with your teachers that are about trying to understand their experiences in the classroom without like any other goal except to understand, right? They're not meetings about giving advice. They're not practitioner meetings. They're meetings about understanding. Practice that with your students. Practice that with your families. Gather a better understanding of the temperature of your school. And again, that alone will shift the way that people are expecting to engage with you and can have some really broad consequences. It's also step one in the process, but I think it can be uh, quite powerful. My name is Ashley Pinakavich. I have a company called Looking Glass Strategy, and the work I do is bringing design thinking principles, approaches, and mindsets to education and youth-serving organizations. I first really got to know Ashley when colleagues and I went looking for industry partners to cultivate one of the country's first programs that explicitly taught human-centered design to youth in high school. That program today is Mouse's Design League. We learned a ton together then about what ways design thinking help promise for supporting change in K-12 education, and some about how K-12 might inspire industry. A decade later, Ashley has embarked on the creation of Looking Glass Strategy, a boutique consultancy that supports education in a multitude of contexts to think deeply about how to grow change from within. And she's still using design thinking to do it. We cover a ton of ground in this conversation. If you're a current or aspiring design thinking educator, I think there's a lot here for you. If you have ideas, resources, areas of DT that you'd like to hear covered on No Such Thing, I hope you'll come find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. Before we get started, send yourself a quick reminder while you're on the go to make time later on, just a few minutes, to log into whatever app is helping you listen to the show rate and offer us a review. It helps me to keep the mics on. Enjoy. Ashley, thanks for doing this. I'm really excited to have you. Thanks for having me. Um, so uh, you flew in last night. I'm pretty excited that I get uh, some time on the calendar with what has been a, a pretty exciting uh, start to the new year for you. You and I go way back and we can we can tell that story a little bit, but um, tell me, let's start with what were you doing in Texas? Um, and, uh, you know, what was, what was, uh, fun, challenging, exciting about, uh, about your most recent trip? Sure. Uh, I was down in Austin for the last few days, uh, co-facilitating a design sprint for a large financial services company. Um, and so I was working in partnership with a company called the design gym. They're a firm based out of Dumbo, Brooklyn, uh, and they empower organizations to solve problems more creatively. So that looks a lot like trainings um, and strategy projects. Um, and they bring me in quite often to partner with folks they have on their team full time to um, facilitate some of these sort of design focused events. So it was two days of working with um, a team from this financial services company and one of their partners to generate a whole bunch of new ideas that will hopefully transform their business. And that is most of what I can say about it. What, tell me about, um, 
just to give people a sense of what your uh, the spectrum through which you see design thinking or have seen design thinking applied over the years because you've seen you've you've led um, workshops and trainings like this for a long time in a lot of different contexts and and just to give people a sense of the the kind of um, the array of ways you've th- seen uh, DT applied I'm uh, curious to hear I started uh in design thinking in the private sector primarily. So I worked at IDEO um, and I really came up not as a designer, right? As um, someone on the business side. Um, And the team that I worked on was called the Toy Lab. And that was the group that um, conceived of toy concepts that they then sold in prototype form to toy companies like Mattel and Electronic Arts. And the partner that ran that group also ran some of IDEO's biggest relationships um, on the more traditional consulting side so, uh, with companies like PepsiCo and Conagra. So I did a lot of work in support of the Toy Lab, as well as with this partner, working both in consumer packaged goods, um, as well as for toy companies, um, doing design thinking trainings and supporting them with strategy projects. And then that extended for about 10 years, primarily working in the private sector and everything from pharmaceuticals to financial services to um, play-based organizations. And I was always kind of inserting um, education projects when I could, sometimes with permission, sometimes without permission. <laughs> um, and so uh, I've, I've had the pleasure in, in my perspective of understanding how this work tends to manifest and be perceived both in Fortune 100 companies as well as in, you know, the smallest sort of, sort of independent school. So it's been really, really interesting to see um, how I need to shift sort of my engagement with design thinking, depending on what world I'm working in. Hmm. I'm curious, as we're thinking about the, um, that crazy spectrum, um, what are there, are, are there, you know, are there things um, at the top of your mind that are threads that run consistently between the two ends of that spectrum uh, when it comes to design thinking um, and these experiences you've had? Yes. And it's funny you ask that question because I feel like uh, either industry tends to believe that their ideas are com- or their problems are completely unique. Mm-hmm. And in some ways they are, right? The constraints that a school faces are very different than the constraints that Fortune 100 company faces. But when you kind of boil it down to its base elements, I, I tend to hear the same kinds of things, right? So the number one thing I guess would be that change is hard. Um Often the conversations that I have with clients start out as we have this very particular problem or business challenge, right? We need to double sales or we need to really evaluate our school mission or I just need my teachers thinking more creatively, right? And um, when I start to sort of dig below the surface, really the thing that they're saying is we need to shift the way we work and we don't know how to do it. Mm. Um, And so I, I think that a lot of the work I do really is as a culture strategist or culture shifter, because um, I think that's what a lot of these companies are saying, whether or not that manifests in like a very, you know, discreet business challenge. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with just how much the world is changing and the way we work is changing. I just read this book called um, Thank You for Being Late by Tom Friedman, the New York Times columnist, mm. and he talks about, excellent, highly recommended. Um, he describes what we're in as the age of acceleration, right? This idea that change is happening at a pace that we've never seen before. And we are struggling as a culture 
um, to keep up with it. And I think a lot of these organizations are facing that challenge, right? How do I shift in response to culture and uh, in the future when we've been one way for so long or we stood for one thing for so long and there's a fear that if I stretch too far, I'm going to break as an organization. Um, I think I hear also a lot of how do I better understand the people that I'm serving, right? Whether that's a student, a teacher, an end customer, um, there seems to be this like really strong, consistent desire among the clients that I work with to just reconnect with the people that they're supposed to be working on behalf of mm. um, and find a way to um, make that a meaningful part of their everyday work. Um, and that's, you know, the design bias anyway. Um, but that seems to be a big ask that I'm getting. And again, these are all kind of secondary to that initial conversation, but tend to be the undergirding issues um, that are coming through. Yeah. And then I think like, finally, people are just on all ends of the spectrum, just want to be inspired. I think that because everything's moving so rapidly and um, the work, especially in the youth serving and mission driven side is so urgent and so important. People are just bogged down in the sort of doing of their work and are desperate to feel the inspiration that led them there in the first place. Mm. That's so interesting. Um, that's such a good boiling down, you know, like we, we need to change. You said we need to change the way we work, but we're not sure how, um, yeah. man, does that not apply to pretty much every part of my life? Yeah. Uh, what as, as now a strategist in education mm -hmm. and we'll, we'll fill in some gaps and tell the story of how you got there. Mm -hmm. But, um, Tell me what things are you taking from your past at, at places like IDEO and, and uh, others? You've sort of you're coming out of this uh, this industry side that is so, um, you know, sort of uh, innovation, uh, innovation at all costs kind of kind of approach. And I'm curious, um, you know, what of those things are serving you now in your work at Looking Glass? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think for me, there are a few things that that stand out that have served me and, and hopefully served my clients and partners, right? One is this idea of what it really takes to build a meaningful relationship. And it always, this is a, the topic that to people always sounds so obvious or mm. so like, why, why wouldn't you be driven by that? But really there are, it's a muscle like anything else and understanding what it takes to really um, build someone's trust in you and not that they're going to say, I'm going to hand over my problem to you. I'm going to hand over my people to you. I'm going to hand over my funds to you. That actually takes time to cultivate and considered effort. And in the best possible scenario, an authentic desire to really help um, and bring value to that relationship. And and I learned a lot um, as a consultant in the private sector about what, what that means. I mean, I think that IDEO and some of my other organizations, uh, while we had, IDEO has a stellar brand name, obviously, but often we were competing against either internal consultants or other potential partners. Um, and so I had to spend a lot of time explaining the value of IDEO and not just in this sort of, you know, pre-baked paragraph form, but what are you really asking me for? And how do I feel that we are the best possible organization and team to meet your needs, mm. right? And so I think about that a lot. What would it take for someone to feel that they trust me enough to, to expose me right to the innards of their organization. And so cultivating relationships is something that I'm always really thinking 
very hard about and also considering how do I bring value just outside of the scope of a project. So when people hire consultants, they're hiring you know, experts, they're hiring therapists, they're hiring um, givers of inspiration, right? They're, um, it's so much more than just, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z for you. And so I'm also thinking about, I, I have this exposure to so many different industries and problems. How can I bring some of what I see to some of my clients to spark their interest, right? How can I help connect them with other people that can serve them in, in other ways? Um, and I think, I think that cultivation of meaningful relationships has not only helped me a lot, but also been like the large, a large part of what fulfills me in my work. Mm-hmm. So sometimes um, clients will come to me and they'll say something like, I have a problem. I don't even know how to describe it. I don't even know what I'm asking you for. I just mm-hmm. need help. Right. Um, and it's my responsibility then to pick apart what the problem is, right. To understand what's going on with them and their organization and then put structure around it. So I hear you. I think that what, what is challenging you is X, Y, and Z. Am I right about that? And then here's a, a set of steps you can take to work through that problem. Mm. And that kind of structure is actually really comforting for for folks, um, if you're working with educators, of course, they love nothing better than, you know, um, structure and processes. But I think like that active translation is a big part of what I learned um, on the consulting side. And uh, because I think like larger organizations like Fortune 100 are so accustomed to working with partners, they tend to have a different set of expectations on what that structure looks like and the kind of questions they ask. And so part of what I try to do with mission-driven organizations that maybe haven't worked with a lot of consultants like me is kind of coach them through, here's how you get the most out of me. Mm. And here's how I'm going to present stuff in a way that I think you're going to digest really well and let me know if it's working or not. Yeah. Um, And then I think the final thing I've learned is the power of language, Mm. right? Um, when I went from consulting to teaching, I remember one of my colleagues at one during one conversation just stopped me and said, I don't, I don't understand what the hell you're saying. <laughs> right? And here I like, <laughs> she's, you know, very, br- very blunt. I, I pride myself on my ability to communicate. Right. And that was a great moment for me to be like, Oh, what's happening. And it turned out I was just like spitting out jargon that had been baked into me over the last 10 years of my career. Uh-huh. Um, it didn't translate in a school the same way that it did in a marketing team. Yeah. Um, and so language is really powerful. Language can make people feel included. Language can make people feel ostracized. Language can um, change the way that you project value about yourself, right? It can um, change the way people perceive themselves and their organizations. And so um, figuring out shaping language in order to um, be best heard and understood by the people you're talking to, I think is really, really critical. And then mm. now as I'm developing in my practice, equitable language has become a big thing that I'm focusing on as well. Mm. Do you want to talk about equitable language? Yeah, sure. Um, so I had this moment um, during a workshop I was facilitating for a, a group of after school practitioners. Mm. Um, in New York state. And, uh, the way I facilitate, as you well know, is like high energy, (laughs) a lot of humor, a lot of gesticulation. And like, I'm very physical, right? That's how I bring Mm. energy into spaces. And I have a lot of facilitator activities and tricks, many of which ask people to get up and do some sort of partner activity for icebreakers or to get up and change your energy for things like brainstorming. 
Um, and I was about to cue in an activity like that. And I looked around the room and I noticed that there was a woman who had a, a leg brace on. Mm. And it was this like moment of, I can't cue everyone to stand up. And why the hell haven't I thought of that before mm. as a potential problem? Right. And so a very simple and what should have been obvious to me as a facilitator indicator that uh, a lot of the things that I take for granted in the way that I ask people to engage and the tricks that I use, like many of those are not inclusive. Mm. Um, and that translates into language as well as content. Right. And so um, I have this like New Jersey <laughs> developed tendency to say you guys, mm. it's not, uh, it's not inclusive in thinking about gender identity. So there are things I'm trying to do to uh, ensure that when I show up, I am showing up on behalf of all the individuals in the room. And um, I'm in a, just just started training um, from a company called Equity by Design, run by a woman named Christine Ortiz, mm. who I went to grad school with, um, which is uh, intended to um, help design practitioners of all ilk uh, consider their work more equitably, which has been a much maligned issue with design thinking in the last year and change. Mm. So interesting. Um, so take me back. Uh, <laughs> you're, you are, um, you are at, you're somewhere in the middle of a career, right? Like, uh, you're no longer, you're, you know, you're, you're fairly far along and, and kind of, um, uh, you know, doing some kicking ass and, and, uh, you were at several really well-known agencies at a really young age. You'd done work at IDEO. Um, you then took, um, a gig running, uh, marketing at Tough Mudder, which mm -hmm. folks will maybe know as the, um, the, how, how did, how do they describe themselves? They're, they are a race, right? But I'm sure that's not how they call themselves. No, not a race. Uh, definitely not a race based challenge. Definitely not a race. That was like the big <laughs> brand differentiator. Yeah. This was like, again, beat into me. Um, and then I beat it into my team. So I, I ran the uh, creative team at Tough Mudder, um, which is a, I can't remember what the last iteration of the branding was, but yeah, it was a, a team based challenge event, right? Yeah. Like the people are used to seeing like the orange headbands and people flooded with mud getting electrocuted yeah. on the, what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's man, it's all over now. Um, so, so you're like, you're on this path and, and what's the moment where, or was it a moment or was it a festering sort of feeling where you're like, you know what? Um, I'm, I'm going to go, uh, teach middle school English. Yeah. Um, it was a bit festering. So I got to tough mutter because I was enjoying the intellectual challenge of the work that I was doing at these organizations. Right. So I liked building relationships. I liked the business development side of things. I liked the strategy side of things. I liked doing insight work. I liked leading projects, but I just couldn't get excited about a lot of the kinds of projects I was doing. Right. So, um, and not, but I was doing a lot of uh, consumer packaged good works and a lot of pharmaceuticals. And once in a project, I can get excited about anything because I feed off of people's energy, but um, I would come away from that project and I wouldn't read about pharma and I wouldn't read about CPG. I'd come home and I'd read about education. Hmm. And I kind of always had in the back of my head, you know, one day I'll teach and I'll do that and I'll keep volunteering. I've been a mentor and volunteer with kids forever. Hmm. Um, 
but okay, maybe the problem is that I'm not working on experiential enough brands, right? Maybe that's what I need. So let me go to Tough Mudder because like you can't get more experiential than that and see how that goes. And it did the trick for the year and a half that I was there. I mean, it's a really meaningful brand to a lot of people. And I was doing a lot of work with the Wounded Warrior Project. And I think I was just like trying to find a soul in the work that I was doing. And I kept mm. sort of tweaking variables and I couldn't find it. And I was talking to my partner at the time and he said, like, all you talk about is education. Why are you doing that? And it was this big, like, oh, duh, <laughs> mm. moment of all of these things that I've been feeling and thinking. For some reason, I felt, and I could we could pick this apart, but I felt like I had committed to and been successful in this particular path, and it made sense to stay on it, right? I thought, if I go back to school, I'll get an MBA, because that's what you do when you're on the marketing and consulting mm. strategy path. But I, couldn't, I just never cared. <laughs> and then that unlocked something in my brain. And I thought, yeah, yes, I want to do that. I just, I don't know how, how do I take this work? I've been cultivating this expertise I've been building for 10 years and apply it. I don't know. So um, that's why I went to grad school um, to get my master's in ed and kind of figure out where someone like me would fit. And then also I just, when I saw the program, I just wanted to spend my entire life. Mm grad school um so I, I spent a year there and i was in a group populated almost entirely by teachers mm. and i was the only person i could find in the entirety of harvard uh ed school that didn't come from the education sector in some capacity mm. right which was awesome uh and i got bitten by the teaching bug um and so much of what i was learning was that you know the most impactful factor in a child's academic and lifelong success is a strong teacher. Um, I was really interested in schools as a space for learning. Um, and it became really clear to me that I didn't know enough about what it takes to make a school successful. And that um, if I were ever going to experience classroom teaching, which had been something I'd always wanted to do, like now was the time. Mm. And so I left school and decided to be a seventh grade English teacher. So, um, you find yourself in the Bronx, yep. right? Um, teaching seventh grade English and, and in an all girl school, <laughs> yep. um, with, uh, people going, what the hell did you just say? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so. I like I'm trying to I think people <laughs> you like understanding what that contrast is like um uh is is really hard to picture but but what was that like for you what was that experience of um going from you know if, if for those who haven't been to you know the the floor of an agency like IDEO um you know where the, the you know the the couch in the waiting room is like the budget of the entire seventh grade, um, <laughs> for, for many schools like, uh, you know, and, and, um, it's not just that, but it's also sort of the, the methodology with which things get done is very different. Um, the values are different, good and bad, um, from, uh, from my perspective, not, not speaking objectively, but, but, um, so what was that like? Like you go from this shiny agency, uh, space and obviously there was some time in between, 
uh, for school, but but you're now in a seventh grade classroom with a group, you know, a, a group of young women. Um, and and how how did that change things for you? And and what did you learn from that? Yeah, I mean, it was it was probably the most severe whiplash I've ever experienced. And I made the mistake of being self-congratulatory. I was like, I'm 31 entering the classroom. I know how to manage my stress. I know what to Mm. expect. I've just been with teachers for a year. I'm aware of the constraints, right? I forgot uh, to remember what I, to know what I don't know. Mm. Um, And I I was, at the same time though, I was well aware that I was an untrained teacher, right? So I taught at a charter school. my master's program was not in teaching. Um, so I was an unlicensed teacher, which meant that I was pursuing an alternative certification while I was teaching, mm. but really, and I, and I'd worked with kids my whole life, but not in a formal classroom setting. And there's a very big difference, particularly when you're talking about, you know, a charter school, uh, in middle school. Um, and so I entered the classroom with this expectation that it would be really hard, but that I would be prepared for the difficulty. And I was, right about the first part and wrong about the second. Um, and I, I think there are a few reasons why. Um, while I, I happen to believe that teachers are some of the most innovative people around, they, um, there have been studies that show that teachers make the most decisions per day of like any other function. Mm. Um, and we all can think about teachers that we know um, adapted on the fly to the needs of their students and are doing incredible things in their classrooms. Right. So, I think teachers are innately innovative. Um, that said, I went from being in an environment that prized, uh, you know, the, like one of the tenets of IDEO was asking for forgiveness, not permission, mm. right? And where there was an expectation, a very clear, explicit expectation that if you were part of this community, you are constantly thinking of new ways to make anything that we do better from the way that, you know, you get breakfast in the morning in our offices to the way that you engage with our most important clients. Um, and if that's not your orientation, this is not the place for you, right? So mm. I grew accustomed to looking at my environment and always trying to conceive of ways to do better and working in radical collaborations with people around me and asking a ton of questions um, and being rewarded for that. And I moved from that into an environment where uh, not only was I personally like kind of paralyzed by my lack of experience, right? I didn't have, I hadn't cultivated an instinct around teaching. Mm. Um, in order to be able to know when that instinct should trump uh, some of the more um, directive things I was being told about how to how to be a teacher. Mm. Um, and also was in an environment where uh, I had a mandated curriculum. I could, I could innovate a little bit within it, but not significantly. Um, the school had a very rigid set of behavioral rules and expectations. Um, and the school itself was nascent. It was its second year of existence, so it was part of a slightly more established charter network. And so I had thought, this is amazing. I'm going to learn how to teach, and I'm also going to be able to contribute to developing the school because that's why would I enter an organization otherwise? Um, and I quickly found out that, that that was not the case, right? So while I'm trying to balance learning how to be a teacher from experts who know how to teach really well with this doesn't feel like the way that I'm used to engaging with youth. This doesn't feel like the way that I would encourage someone to learn a new topic or skill. Um, that was really, really difficult for me. And then I worked with this. I had an incredibly committed and dedicated seventh grade team, uh, both of my years at the school. And 
we would meet and propose solutions to some of the things that were plaguing our school um, outside of our classrooms. And those solutions would be met with silence. And I think that was a combination of many things. One was that the school was totally under-resourced mm. chronically, as many charter schools and, and schools from low-income students are. Um, we had new leadership at the charter level um, that I think kind of shifted the the focus of the school into a more of like a no excuses model. And I also think that when you're working with students for whom the remit is like, get them to grade level because that's what they deserve. And that's what they need in order to be successful in the future. That trumps everything else. And even though I think that like, you can't do that kind of work in a vacuum, that cultural difference was like, it was, it was really shocking to me. And I found that that lack of flexibility and that lack of being able to experiment on behalf of the students and alongside the students was the thing that was the hardest for me as a, as a teacher. Um, and so, yeah, jarring, I think is the best word. Um, mm. And the only thing that I think the most redeeming element of that whole experience, of course, was actually teaching the kids. Teaching was amazing. Mm. Being a teacher, mm. I found very difficult. Oh, interesting. Um, when you just to back up on um, no excuses, can you just explain mm -hmm. that for somebody who's not coming from a school uh, where where that's a thing? Sure. So um, charter schools, and I taught a charter school in the Bronx, New York, right? So charter schools, uh, their charters are granted to them by the state, and those charters uh, include a set of deliverables or expectations, right? KPIs, you'd call this in the business world, that the school must meet in order to remain in existence and receive funding. Um, and so no excuses schools, a lot of those expectations are test scores. Mm. Um, so no excuses schools are almost entirely geared toward uh, students meeting or exceeding the test score expectations set by the seat in order to remain in existence and also to demonstrate that that school is uh, potentially either equal to or better than the public school alternative yeah. locally. Yeah. Um, and so like Success Academy has been the one that's been held up as a sort of prototypical no excuses school, unfairly or not. Um, but uh, essentially the, the criticism around no excuses is that they triumph uh, test scores over social emotional learning and, and student well-being. Yeah. That's for um, maybe another show. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a juicy topic. Because we, we could spend some time there. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so you spend some time in the classroom and, um, what do you think from, from your time as a seventh grade teacher, what are the things from that experience that are now going into this new organization you founded? Um, looking glass strategy is now very focused on a, a sort of confluence of these two worlds. Um, you know, a set of skills you cultivated over, you know, a decade, um, combined with, uh, you know, a lot of passion and experience and academic background now in, in the world of education. Um, what do you think you bring from that, uh, those young women that you worked with over those two years that, that goes into the work now? Oh, where do I start? Um, I think I'll sort of take it from the high level and then talk about the kids. Um, I understood how organizations, businesses worked, right? For-profit businesses. Um, and that was important to my job in the private sector. Um, schools, understanding how a school operates, you can do that 
theoretically, but until you're inside of a school, it's very hard to understand how all of the many variables, some of which are less obvious to someone standing outside the building, all contribute to a school's success or lack thereof, right? And so I learned, and there are some principles that cross both around best practices, around team dynamics and things like that, but um, I learned so much about what it meant to be an excellent teacher and what it meant to be an excellent teacher leader and what it meant to be an excellent um, administrator and how, uh, how much of that work is about um, supporting. So every teacher that I met was deeply committed to their students and incredibly inspiring regardless of experience level. Mm. Um, And to keep teachers around, it takes a lot of work to combat the burnout um, and the, you know, the, low salary and all the things that make it hard to be a teacher. So I think I bring a much deeper um, empathy to that work for everyone who's working in support of teachers and the students they serve, because it's much more difficult than it appears. And while, you know, I certainly talk about my time at the charter school is challenging. I have no doubt that every single adult that I interacted there, one of the best for the kids. Um, I think it's, uh, it's also important um, that I recognize things like, if you know, I do a lot of work training teachers and I understand how to make the connections now between what I'm asking them to do, how I'm asking them to behave as design thinkers and what their constraints are, what it means to actually sit down and write a lesson plan, right? Um, what it means to try to create a little bit of space for innovation when you're getting mandates from your superintendent, your principal, and whomever else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are nuances of that. And part of it is just like, I've, I've got some credibility and that I can speak the language a little bit more, but I also understand why being a teacher is challenging. And so I can help teachers design around those challenges. So that's the kind of professional answer, right? The, the really personal answer is that, um, and it sounds trite, but I don't care, is that like I learned far more from my students um, than they ever learned from me. And I think there are a few things that I, I came away with. One was that, um, I grossly underestimated how much stuff kids carry with them when they enter a school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I happen to be working with a number of students, uh, all of whom are below the poverty level, um, many of whom uh, face challenges such as uh, language barriers um, or cognitive barriers or uh, had been um, uh, at the wrong end of trauma or like there's this confluence of factors that kids would walk into school and I'd expect them to engage in a very particular way. And they were coming in with this weight, Mm. um, but still showing up every single day, eager to learn and working their asses off. And so I think um, I gained a really, 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 really deep respect for um, just for students and youth in the building and how much it's easy to get frustrated as an adult educator when students are getting where you want them to go, whether that's behaviorally, academically, but um, it's so important to remember that you're asking an incredible amount of these kids. Mm. I I take a lot of that with me. Um, I also uh, was a white woman teaching um, all young women of color. And so um, I began to become very aware of practices and content um, that was oppressive to my students. Um, they made me aware of it. Um, there were uh, elements of teaching that I was really concerned about in terms of like some of the charter school educator expectations. And so um, I feel like a large unit of my work is to um, to help 
people that serve youth do it in a more equitable, youth empowering way. And to like break this expectation of adults have the answers and we're handing them down to um, this really student driven. It is my job to amplify student voice. It is my job to understand who these students are as individuals. It is my job to give them the tools to do whatever it is they want to do in this world. And it is my job to um, work very, very hard to break the cycles of oppression uh, on behalf of my students. And so that is something that I'm seeking to do in my work in the smallest ways, but also seeking out work with other organizations and adults for whom that's like the driving passion. Mm. Tell me about the name Looking Glass. Well, I was an English teacher for a reason. Huge, <laughs> huge nerd, uh, big reader, have been a lifelong fan of Lewis Carroll and Alice's Adventures in Wonder Wonderland. Uh, I loved that book as a kid and I reread it a few times as an adult. Um, so, you know, the, the premise is Alice, like, falls in one point she falls down this rabbit hole in another book she actually walks through a looking glass and she goes from the world that she lives in which has a very clear set of rules and expectations and Alice is expected to be a very you know certain way Mm. and then she enters this world where everything is completely different it has its own set of rules which sometimes are that there are no rules right Mm. but she enters this totally different world and has to reframe her understanding of how things are right how people interact what is a person what how people talk to one another um and i just loved that allegory and for me the idea of the looking glass is that we we walk around carrying so many assumptions about the way the world has to be we tolerate so much that is inadequate um for ourselves and for kids and there's no reason for that right if we could just sort of redirect the perspective and the lens and say well what if Imagine if it looked totally differently. Mm. Um, We could really, I think, start to shift towards some meaningful change. I think one of the reasons that a lot of these sort of, which is what I strive to do with clients, right? Um, And I think a lot of the reasons that educational initiatives fail is because they carry forward so many of these assumptions that um, I believe are false and that are not serving kids. So Mm. it's my mission to kind of like be that looking glass for my partners and, and, uh, help them to see that that things could look very, very different um, if they choose. It feels very, um, I love that. Um, I'm glad I asked. It feels very um, Frarian. Um, yeah. There's that great quote from uh, Paulo Freire where uh, he talks about there being two, two kinds of education. Uh, one where, and I'll, kill the quote, but I'll, I'll fix it, uh, in the show notes, I'll put the actual quote. Um, there are two kinds of education. There's one, you know, by which we, uh, bring people into and help them function in the system that exists. And, uh, second where, uh, we help them to overcome the oppression of that system and, and create something new in effect is what Mm -hmm. he says or what I take from it anyway. And, and, um, that feels, that feels along the lines of, of what you're saying with looking glass. I love that. Um, so do you think, um, that design thinking is a tool, uh, that can achieve that? Yes, I think it's a tool. I don't think it's the only tool, the tool that I love. Um, the reason I love it is because it's so empowering, right? And so, and I've done design thinking with students, uh, on multiple occasions, including 
uh, some mouse kids. Um, and what I, so it's inherently optimistic, right? Design thinking says there's a better way to do this. And that in and of itself, like is a, is a mindset shift for a lot of people. Right. And then when you are giving a kid the tools and you're saying, I believe that you can take these tools, which by the way, anyone can do these, you know, these are not inaccessible academic concepts. These are, these are really um, innate sort of muscles that you can continue to build and grow for yourself. I believe if you take these tools and here's some activities, and by the way, you're already really good at this because you're a kid. And so you're super, super creative and you can go out into your community and you can figure out what you're passionate about, what isn't working as well as it could be. And you can be the person who helps create a better way of doing something right or a better product or a better experience for your community. That is crazy empowering. And so many students are told explicitly and implicitly that their voices don't matter. Mm. Um, and they're very attuned to this. I cannot tell you how articulate my seventh graders were um, at recognizing or um, commenting to me that adults and society are basically telling them in so many different forms and ways, we don't really care what you have to say, right? You're not of value. Um, and I think design thinking assumes that you as an individual, as a practitioner, as a member of a community of designers has value. And I think, um, that every kid should be exposed to that. Um, I think that it's also, uh, it requires skills and mindsets that are critical to success or 21st century skills. We all know are things like creative problem solving and collaboration. Um, and those are the kinds of things that design thinking asks of its practitioners. And so we absolutely have a responsibility to develop those um, alongside our students in order to prepare them to be successful in the world, to give them, especially I'm thinking of my kids for whom a lot of educational structures tell them there are a couple of paths for you and that's it. I want to give them as many opportunities as possible to choose what they can in their lives. And I think design thinking is uh, a really, really powerful um, tool is not even the right word, right? A really powerful way to do that. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people who look at K-12 education, even um, within K-12 education, feel like d a design exercise within the current system um, is not enough. That you know, you hear people say all the time, uh, it's a, it's a, uh, shitty choice of words, but, um, you know, let's blow it up and start over. Um, and I wonder how you feel about that from a, you know, somebody who's been inside the system and, uh, now somebody who works, uh, you know, alongside the system through the, the consulting work you're doing, um, I, I'd imagine it would be really hard to do this work and feel like we should blow it up. Um, you know, what do you say to those people? Do you think that um, this is a, a multi-tiered question? What do you say to those people? Um, and do you, are there design examples that you can think of where, design has transformed something as significantly as K-12 education in the U.S. needs to be reworked? Juicy questions. Um, yeah, God, that, that blow it up one is, is a really tricky one. Um, and I'm probably not going to give a satisfactory answer because my answer is like, I hear them, I cheer them on, and I also want to tell them to be realistic, right? So, um, 
this goes back to what I was saying about like us caring forward assumptions that are not serving kids, right? So I think one of the things I would like to blow up is the funding structure for public schools in America. Mm. It's inherently inequitable. And I think it's a huge driver of why uh, we have so many failing schools mm. um, and so much disparity between um, uh, students, public students, educational experiences, right? I'm not going to touch private schools today, but I think that's a huge, huge issue. So I'd, well, I'd love to blow that up, right? But you can't blow something up without having a plan in practice. I think um, one of the things that's hard for educators when we talk about things like experimenting is that the stakes are so high, right? A child's life, a child's year, a child's hour is so high that we don't want to, we don't ever want to um, approach it with this mindset of like, well, try something out and if it doesn't work, eh, that's okay. Right? Yeah. It's, it's a child. Um, and so I think maybe responsible blowing up is the way to go. However, one of the things that I'm starting to think a lot about, um, and I can thank many of my clients for this, is this idea that I think a lot of people look at design thinking and they become overwhelmed by the process of it, right? It's often talked about as like, here's this five-step process and you're going to deploy it. And by the way, it requires working in a totally different way than you're accustomed to. And you're going to have to restructure your projects and mm. goodbye, good luck. Mm -hmm. Um, that's not realistic for many organizations, nonprofits or schools, notwithstanding, right? I think more realistically, the culture change takes time and it takes to authentically happen and to be sustainable. It takes uh, buy-in from the people who are formerly leaders and informally leaders. And I think approaches that tend to stick that I see stick in my partners are ones where you bite off little bits and pieces here and there that can fit, right? So maybe as a teacher, I can't suddenly start teaching project-based learning in my school, but maybe what I can do is run a brainstorming session with my students when we're thinking about what a, like a final project might look like. Maybe what I can do is uh, do a different kind of empathy exercise as an English teacher when I'm having students connect to characters in a novel, right? Um, maybe what I can do is with my colleagues restructure the way we have our standard existing meeting to make it more student focused. I think Especially when you're talking about an organization that is strapped for time and resources, you can't just radically shift everything. You have to start working within those existing structures in order to create change from the inside out. Um, I also think that, I mean, blowing stuff up is nice and it happens, but it usually happens when either, like, we failed so much that we think, well, nothing could be any worse than what the kids are dealing with already. Or these kids already have so many resources, like, let's just do something wild with them. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure either one is entirely responsible. So um, I think blow it up is the right mentality, but I think there has to be like, maybe it's a lot of little explosions to get to that big, mm, well, that that's big one at the end. That's interesting to think about. Do you ever watch those, um, those videos of, of the like de demolition experts and how they take down like a gigantic structure? Yes. You know, and they man yeah. they managed to do it like within within they managed to do it within one city block, you know, to be like a like a sixteen story building. Um, but it's this like delicate little puffs of smoke, and you see it just sort of slowly um, come down. Uh, so it's interesting yeah. what you say that um, you know there's a, a difference between uh, I guess a, a hatchet and a scalpel. Yeah. Um, in, in some of these cases, I think the other thing that I, I, I know you would agree with, and maybe a nice pivot to something else I wanted to ask you is, 
um, people from the outside hear the headlines and not unlike a lot of things, um, you know, the, we, we don't necessarily as a, as a culture thrive. We haven't built a media culture that, um, is, you know, where, where we click on good news first necessarily. And, um, I think, I think that what you miss from the outside a lot is just how many dedicated, um, truly creative, innovative, um, educators there are out there who are doing just amazing work and, and under the conditions they're doing it, um, man, you know, the idea that, uh, we're celebrating certain professions in the way that we are versus, um, versus great educators. And I mean, I mean that in the widest sense. So in, in so many different spaces, um, educators are having such a, a, a deep impact on, uh, all kinds of learners and, and, um, you don't get to see it as much because, you know, there's not necessarily somebody from the, uh, uh, somebody from the posts, somebody from Buzzfeed sitting outside your, your classroom. But, um, so my question for you is, uh, you, as a strategist, you now get to travel a lot. You get to see, um, a lot of things happening all over the place, all, uh, the world, even you, you spent the summer teaching in China, um, this past year. Um, and I want to talk about what innovation you're finding and, and, um, what things you're seeing that, uh, you wish you could sort of share instantly everywhere else. Yeah. It's such a good point too, Mark. And I think, I think part of it also is that, well, certainly as a society, we don't necessarily also value the work of teachers. No, we value other types of work. I think that's part of the problem. I also know so many teachers who would never self-identify as creative or innovative. Um, and I think that's part and parcel of the same thing, right? So this is like my, my request to all you teachers out there to, uh, really shine a light on the work you're doing because, um, even the, the smallest shifts in the way you engage with students has a remarkable, remarkable positive mm. consequences. So, um, yeah, I've seen, I've been really lucky uh, that my work has allowed me to be exposed to a lot of different um, youth-based experiences. And I've also, you know, made it a, a, a point for myself to spend some time visiting classrooms um, and really make sure that that's a large part of my practice. So I can talk about a couple of those experiences. Um, in so my work in China um, was through a school called the Bement School, which is a K through nine uh, boarding and day school based in Deerfield, Massachusetts, like in the country. An incredible school that uses a lot of outdoor play and forest learning, and they've got um, some really cool programs that uh, I was I was pretty excited to discover. Um, so they, because of where they're located, um, a large part of their curriculum is is about connecting students with the natural world, mm. and so they've they bought a bunch of acreage um, and have converted that acreage into like gardens and farm land and uh, have built into all their science curricula, an experiential element in which students engage in using that land in that space um, in a meaningful way. Is, um, that, is that what you just called forest learning? Yeah. 
forest learning, which is uh, my sister-in-law actually does forest learning for her nursery students in London. Yeah. Um, but that's one of the terms. I I've have heard. never heard that term. <laughs> forest Doesn't learning. it sound like something you want to do? Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> actually, I should say, uh, I'll give another shout out to my sister-in-law. So she works with the littlest kids, right? And she, um, she taught them how to whittle last year. That was kind mm. of a personal project that she developed with her students. And because her students are, you know, they're, they're Londoners. These are kids who don't live in the country. She's trying to bring the country to them in a meaningful way at a very young age to cultivate uh, a love and appreciation for nature. And so far as school is kind of their approach. So, you know, instead of, instead of having a science lesson, they'll go out into a park and the kids will explore and they will pick up leaves and we'll have conversations about what they're seeing. And it's a much more, mm. uh, it's much more of the EL experiential learning kind of a model. Um, and so I think PubMed is doing that uh, also in a really meaningful and very rigorously academic way uh, for their older students and their young ones as well. Um, so the China work was the PubMed school uh, as a K through nine school that offers boarding. Um, they are seeing a rise in uh, families with students in China and Indonesia um, and a few other countries that have uh, a strong desire to send their kids to American boarding schools for secondary school, right? For high school with the idea that their kids are then going to be better prepared to be successful in American universities and colleges. There's still a lot of cachet around that um, in some of these markets. Um, and so the, the men's school offers an on-site program, which is uh, a combination of English language learning, as well as boarding school preparedness for those students, because, what they have found is if you if you sit in a traditional Chinese school, there's a very different culture of learning than there is in a traditional American school. Mm. Um, and so they found that a lot of their students years ago who initially came over were struggling to be successful because they didn't know how to engage in academic discourse, right? Because um, for a lot of our Chinese students in particular, um, the cultural expectation in school is it's very much a call and response kind of a model. Um, so they've been running that program on their campus for a few years and then decided to bring it to the market. And so last year I helped um, co-design and, and co-teach uh, English language learning and boarding school preparedness to students in China ages nine through 13 mm. um, in Shanghai. And it was, it was a transformative experience. Actually, it was, it was pretty amazing. Um, and that work was all about how do I, how do I, meaningfully prepare the students for an American classroom while also not uh, communicating intentionally or not that American classrooms are superior or that American culture is superior, right? Or that this is like the thing to strive for. It's, uh, that was a really important balance for me to achieve. So um, that was a big focus of the work. Um, and so I, I, what I do think is interesting uh, and innovative to come back to your original question is that the men's school is thinking meaningfully about uh, what does global education look like and mean? Um, how do we think not just about academic preparedness, but uh, preparedness in terms of culture and cultural expectations? What does cultural fluency even mean? Hmm. Um, and I think they're doing it in a very sort of small and exciting way, but the students in China are really driving what that program looks like, which is really exciting. Um, I have a colleague, uh, Dan Wise, uh, who was my teaching fellow um, at Harvard. He uh, he was the TF for John Maida's um, class at Harvard, uh, Design and Education. Um, 
Shaw has a book coming out. Everyone should read it. Mm-hmm. Um, Dan uh, is, is, is a teacher by training. He's phenomenal in the classroom, and he's now teaching high school at Prospect Hill Charter Academy in Boston. Mm. Dan teaches um, an elective called Madness in Literature, which is already in itself innovative. But what I love about it is that uh, not only are students reading um, content about, uh, you know, mental illness and all its various forms, um, but they're also um, speaking to people who have suffered through mental illness and trying to build empathy around others, speaking to practitioners of mental health. Um, they're trying to understand not just the literature around it, but their cult, but American culture and how it treats mental illness. And mm. I think what Dan is doing is really powerful because not only is he offering students a different way into literature and, and writing, but he's, uh, he's cultivating empathy um, around a topic that until very recently has had quite a bit of stigma. So, I love that. Um, yeah. And Dan, you know, I was there to visit his classroom um, just for his, uh, one of the AP classes he teaches. And even in an AP class structure, he basically said, I'm going to try this experiment today and we'll just see how it goes. Mm. And it was a student led um, debate. But Dan, Dan's pedagogical method is students will drive the learning and we will experiment, but they'll be the ones to co-design the experiments. Mm. And they are so invested. And I had never seen so much engagement and passion um, from students in an AP classroom as I had in Dan's. And mm. so um, definitely a model worth repeating. Do you want me to, I have a couple more if you want me to share yeah, some please. Um. So uh, a school that has been definitely talked about, I'm not the first to mention them, but Avenues, the world school here in New York. Mm. Um, they are an independent school. Uh, I believe they start in kindergarten. They extend through 12th grade. They might have a pre-K, uh, but their whole philosophy is cultivating global citizens. So their younger grades are, uh, the classrooms are language immersive. So you sign your child up for uh, Mandarin, Spanish, or French classroom, I believe. I believe. Um, and the idea is that they're growing students who are bilingual because Americans are sadly behind many of their countries in terms of the number of languages we speak. So that's like one of the small things they do. Um, they also have an incredible program uh, run by a guy called Ivan Sestero, uh, and it's a social innovation incubator. So he teaches, he's, he's now uh, working in London, but he's been teaching and has developed four electives for students that are all design thinking based mm. where they will solve real problems. So I met with a student last year who was um, after um, the hurricane in Puerto Rico, he had designed like a, a drop box uh, full of um, chargers uh, because people there were having a hard time getting electricity that could be dropped off by drones. And he was actually working with a partner to deploy them in Puerto Rico, which I was oh astounded gosh. by. Yeah. Um, and uh, so the students do some really meaningful work in those classes. And then the students run an incubator where um, other students and organizations partner with them um, and they actually develop ideas or businesses that get funded or pitched out. Um, and so to me, that is like the ultimate extreme level of how do we engage kids as designers? Because in these instances, their work is going out into the world. Talk about what um, two things. I want to come back to design thinking for a second because um, you're doing a lot of work there. And for those who, um, you know, for all the reasons they might not be able to have an outside strategist 
come in to talk to them about um, whether it's design thinking as a tool within uh, within the way they teach, um, or it's design thinking as a way to to work differently or change the the institution within which they're working. Um, what are some things that you can share? Maybe it's uh, favorite resources, maybe it's rules of thumb that might um, that might stick uh, if we throw it out there um, through this episode for um, you know educators who you're not going to be able to bump into. Sure. Um, so there are a couple of resources out there. I mean, the cool thing about design thinking is that it's it's open source, right? So there's a lot of material. Um, out in the world that can be helpful, at least from understanding what the approach is. Um, and I'll mention a couple here. Uh, IDEO created something called a field guide for educators. It's design thinking specifically for educators. And it, it's like a, it's a packet you can print that walks you through the process and has some guiding questions for teachers um, who want to use this to tackle a particular problem or potentially design something in their classroom. Um, there's also a, a really cool organization called the Teachers Guild, which is also from IDEA, but in a partnership with the Riverdale School in New York. Um, and it's an online community of educators who um, want to become more design proficient and who are helping each other essentially solve classroom problems or do more design work. It's a really, really great community, and I cannot recommend them enough. Um, Stanford Design School has a bunch of cool content on design thinking. Um, and then uh, an organization that I work with um, and Mark knows as well, Leadership and Design, uh, mm. run by a woman named Carla Silver, um, who does design thinking and leadership development um, for educators, has some, some great content up on her site as well. Um, so that's the good news, right, is that the, the stuff is out there. I think mm. the hard thing is then how do I apply that to my very particular context in life? Um, and there are a couple of ways that I think about it. You know, and my work is like, getting really, really customized in that realm. But I think there are some things that can help teachers uh, regardless of mm. where they are. One is um, when a teacher is specifically trying to do design work in her classroom, she wants or he wants his, uh, students to um, do a design project of some kind. There's a great book called Launch. Um, the author's names escape me, um, but QFAR School in Queens has been using it for some of their classes for third and fourth graders. So, mm. Really, the store can be done at any age. And it takes the design thinking process and uh, puts it in more student-friendly language and gives some really helpful, there are rubrics in there, um, there are project guidelines. If you want to have kids go through like an entire design course, it's, it's a great resource. Um, I think uh, I would also um, recommend that teachers consider where are the spaces in which a project like that could fit in what you're already doing, right? So a lot of schools that I've worked with have used capstone as a way to do design projects. So the capstone model is modeled around design thinking uh, and kids do an end of year project um, that just follows that course. I also worked with a school in New York um, that did design thinking for their enrichment week, which is a week when kids um, don't have normal classes and they do like passion projects that are assisted by teachers. And so I think there are some cycles and structures in which you can pilot that work, especially if you're in a school where you don't have permission to radically reinvent the way that you're teaching in the classroom, but you want a, a couple of proof points around design thinking. Um, and again, there are small bites. If you want your kids to act like designers, maybe you have them brainstorm inside of the classroom instead of 
having a conversation about whether or not they want to do an essay or an oral report or a podcast for their final project. Um, maybe uh, if you're a science teacher, uh, you engage kids more in prototyping um, right as part of, of the curricula. Um, I think there are a lot of small bite opportunities for teachers to kind of start practicing some other skills and mindsets. Um, if, on the other hand, you're an educator and it's like, I just want to work differently. My school is so constrained. We have all these problems. I need better ways of, of being. Um, I would still say that those original resources are useful. Um, I think for me and what I've seen as a teacher and as someone who works with educators, some of the more transformative things happen when you bring educators together. Hmm. And I look at something like the staff meeting, right, which is like the dreaded staff meeting <laughs> where people are like you can feel the physical resistance in the room because teachers have negative time and staff meetings are often focused on reporting and not much else. Um, if a staff meeting, one staff meeting, right, a year or a quarter were designed around, here's the big challenge that we're going to try to tackle together for our school. Maybe you've noticed that behavior spikes during lunch and you want to focus on that. Um, maybe you've got, um, high teacher burnout in one particular department and you want to focus on that. Mm. Um, maybe there's a new mandate you're trying to uh, absorb into your school, whatever it is, like pick an, pick an actual problem the school is facing. And instead of using that time to report, use that time to generate ideas among your colleagues. And there are all those tools that I mentioned have ways in which to do that. Um, but even the simple act of shifting the way that you're asking people to come together um, in that collective meeting can make waves uh, across the organization. And, and the number one thing that I would say for uh, leaders in a school um, is to practice the empathy piece um, to, instead of having meetings that are evaluative only, include meetings with your teachers that are about trying to understand their experiences in the classroom without like any other goal except to understand, right? They're not meetings about giving advice. They're not practitioner meetings. They're meetings about understanding. Practice that with your students. Practice that with your families. Gather a better understanding of the temperature of your school. And again, that alone will shift the way that people are expecting to engage with you and can have some really broad consequences. It's also step one in the process, but I think it can be uh, quite powerful. Yeah. Can you, can you, um, so two things, one, um, the book launch, um, mm. using design thinking to boost creativity and bring out the maker in every student, uh, is written by John Spencer. Right. Um, thank you. Yeah. And, and then I just wanted to ask you to talk a tiny bit just about the, um, the point in the design process of empathy, you know, you used empathy as a, um, as a point in the process, but I think it's easy to mistake when people talk about empathy in design, uh, to an outsider, it's easy to not just be thinking about empathy as a, um, uh, you know, in the way we know it as, as a word that has, um, become, uh, is different from compassion, but has become in some ways synonymous with it um, in people's minds. So can you just talk about the process of empathy real quick? Yes, definitely. Um, design empathy is uh, intentionally seeking to understand the people for whom you're designing, right? The people whose experience you're trying to make better in whatever shape or form. Um, and you can develop that empathy by deploying a specific set of tools to better understand people and understand them from their perspective, not from your 
belief of their perspective or your assumptions about who they are and where they come from, right? So psychologically, we're wired to make assumptions about the people around us based on our own experiences, which is certainly short-sighted and not in service of designing a solution for somebody else. So a very, very simple tactic that designers use are empathy interviews, which are uh, in-depth one-on-one conversations with their end user or, again, the person we're designing for, um, with the explicit goal of understanding their motivations, their needs, their desires, um, their behaviors around whatever topic you're, you're facing. So, for example, if you're a principal trying to understand, trying to reduce uh, teacher turnover, right, um, an empathy interview would be sitting with current teachers and really asking meaningful questions about their current experience, how they're feeling, why they're feeling that way, asking for stories and examples, um, trying to get into the, the person behind the behavior, and then also speaking to teachers who have left your school and, and trying to understand what that's all about. Talking to teachers who have been at your school for 10 years and why they've stayed. So the empathy interview, um, it's certainly something that we are all capable of doing as humans, but there are ways to do it better than others. There are like asking open-ended questions, like asking for stories, Uh, like listening more than talking, Um, but it's a really valuable tool. There are other tools, things like in-context observations. So we're used to observations, meaning in a school context, evaluative um, ways of of determining a teacher's efficacy. But an observation in this context is, I'm going to watch you behave in the context of this problem I'm trying to solve to learn from how you interact. So if I'm concerned about teacher turnover, maybe I'm watching a departmental meeting and I'm just listening and I'm watching body behavior and I'm trying to understand how these teachers are relating to one another. Um, there are other tools like you can have journaling. Um, you can do radical empathy, which is stepping into someone's shoes. So in this example that I am beating into the ground, it would be a principal uh, perhaps um, teaching for a week and then being evaluated by somebody else and then, you know, being asked to rate his or her experience. Right. So, um, it's not empathy in the sort of basic sense of uh, I feel and experience your pain. It's empathy in terms of I am making a concerted and consistent and intentional effort to understand who you are and how you engage with this particular problem so that I can better serve you. Um, Brene Brown does some cool work talking about this type of empathy and um I think it's critical. I like my one of my pet projects that is a long term project for me is to try to pilot a empathy for teachers program because I actually think it's a critical skill for educators and one that is not even touched upon in many teacher training programs. Mm-hmm. Um, but if teachers are able to practice this kind of empathy with their students, I think you would have some transformative classroom experiences. Mm. Do you do you get a, do you get annoyed at all at the um, the idea or expectation from the outside that, uh, you know, design thinking is about post-it notes? <laughs> well, I mean, I love post-it notes. It's not the worst thing I've heard. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like people are like, oh, design thinking. Yeah. Like, um, we, we, you know, lots of post-it notes and we got markers. Well, the teacher in me is like, yes, it is about post-it notes, and here's why we use them, right? Um, Because you can take an idea and you can shape it, and it's not precious, and blah blah blah. So, I mean, in some ways, no. Like I said, there are there are design thinking of them aligned in in far worse ways. I think I don't care so much about. Look, I didn't come to design thinking as what I call this capital D designer, right? I don't have 
uh, an industrial design or graphic design or engineering degree, right? I came up to the business side and I consider myself a design thinker and, and strategist. And so I, I don't subscribe to this belief that it has, there's one precious definition of it and it has to be practiced only one way and that way is the right way. I think anytime it becomes exclusive, it's no longer design thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't care what people call it. Um, I think what matters in, in my mind is that if we're talking about a set of mindsets like empathy-based problem solving and radical collaboration and ideating and testing your ideas before you deploy them, then like that's, that's what matters the most to me, the, the packaging it comes in, not so much as long as that packaging is inherently inclusive and accessible, which I think, I think that's starting to shift a little bit now instead of it being owned by people in like tight black jeans and dark rim glasses. Um, <laughs> which I wear both, (laughs) but that's not the model I want. Right. It's not, that's not what we're going for. So tight, um, black jeans, uh, darkroom glasses and post-it notes. And you're, you're all set. And perhaps like very well cultivated facial hair, (laughs) which like, if you have all those things, I applaud you. I just described my partner. Um, (laughs) but you're not the only person who can be practicing. And, you know, I think the subtext behind that is that it is a white person. Um, and I think if you look at it, you know, design thinking comes from architecture and engineering and these fields that were for a long time dominated by, you know, wealthy white men. And, um, it is long overdue for a rebranding. Well, I love that. And, um, that feels like, like a, uh, worthy and substantial goal for, uh, you guys as a strategy group, democratizing, uh, the process and the field, because these are, nobody owns these tools. Um, it's a way of approaching problems and, and, um, I love that. I, I want to throw in one resource, um, maybe two, uh, for those looking for design thinking, um, ways to connect with design thinking. If you're an educator, uh, I highly recommend, um, number one, Google groups. Um, there are educator Google groups all over the place. Um, and if you go to, um, groups at Google and, and, um, just do some searching for design thinking tons will come up on Twitter. Um, there's a hashtag called DTK 12 chat. Um, and I will shout, uh, those guys out because there's a pretty robust, um, uh, you know, just process of, of sharing, uh, dialogue and, and good, um, you know, uh, it's an, it's a nice, uh, example of where people are using, uh, Twitter and social media, um, for really, really positive dialogue and, and resource sharing. Um, and then I, I always, I, I can't, um, it's, it's, um, I can't get away from recommending to any human, uh, to read some of Donald Norman's, um, mm kind of seminal texts, uh, like things that make us smart, um, just as a, uh, design of everyday things is a, is a beautiful book. Um, but just to, to, you know, for, for anyone who's thinking about changing, um, the, the way that they approach anything, it doesn't need to be necessarily their professional work. Um, it could be a hobby. It could be their day to day. Um, you will not read, 
those books and start to look at the world a little differently, um, our, our designed world anyway. Ashley, let's let's um, plug the pants off of Looking Glass Strategy. Where can people <laughs> find you um, and uh, and get more of your thoughts? Great. Um, the website is www.throughthelg.com, as in through the looking glass. Uh, apparently, I'm not the only person to be wowed by Lewis Carroll. Um, but <laughs> www.throughthelg.com. Um, there are ways to contact me there. That You can get me at ashley at throughthelg.com. Um, there's also a blog on there where I muse about all sorts of things related to this. Um, I'm at Ashley Pinna, A-S-H-L-E-Y-P-I-N-A on Twitter. And Looking Glass has some nascent, uh, I should just say, neglected Facebook <laughs> page <laughs> and Instagram page as well, which the good news is it's because I'm doing the work. But um, my, my most active uh, site is the website. And, um, and you know, it's about design thinking, meeting you serving organizations, and that typically falls into three categories. So I do a lot of facilitation, meaning a lot of um, skill development and training work. So that can look like what is design thinking as an introductory sort of element. Sometimes I run design sprints where um, a team is a really clear uh, challenge. They want to generate new ideas for something and I help facilitate that. Um, I do strategy work. So design is the vehicle to help organizations with strategic plans, mission, vision, values, that kind of thing. And then working alongside partners on the innovation side. So what would it look like if we developed design thinking curricula? And I think um, you didn't ask for it, but I'll tell you. Uh, which is that the approach really is uh, it, I work to provide these tools and empower my partners for them to solve their own problems, right? They're, they're the experts in their community and they're the experts in their culture. And so um, my work is just to facilitate them to using the ex- that expertise in the most useful and inspiring way possible. So that's what I do. And that's what I love. Ashley, thank you so much for doing this. It's been uh Terrific to have you. It, um, you know, we've, we've, uh, we talk about a lot. I, uh, I love to plug your work in part because, um, there's a lot of strategy needed in K-12 and there's a lot of, um, there is a lot of subpar strategy, uh, work going Mm -hmm. on in K-12 and, um, I want people to know about, uh, what you are doing at, uh, you know, uh, with Looking Glass Strategy, uh, because I think it's um, it's work that I've experienced and and know that has made a big difference, uh, you know, in, in my own work. So um, I'm so glad you're out there doing it. And uh, thanks for joining. I think people are going to get a lot from uh, from the conversation. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me. For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in Episode Zero, an Ithaca bomber, an engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No Such Thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. This show would not be possible without the support from the good people at Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us online at mouse.org.